welcome to There Will Be Bugs, an inside podcast created to enlighten listeners about the surprising world of entomology. I am one of your hosts, Ben. And I'm Zilla. Uh, Sorry, everyone. It's been so long since we've posted an episode. Uh, Who knows when I'm actually going to get this up, but I know it's we're going on three weeks here, but I spent the last week in Lexington, so I haven't really been around. Yeah. We're working full time and school full time and then trying to move across the country is a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot, a lot of moving parts and uh, we're not sponsored, so it's not like we have to get this out. I li- I'd like to try and keep it to a, a bi-weekly schedule, but um, I know that's not always going to be possible, so. We'll do our best. Yeah. Ben will do his best. I just kind of sit here. Something I want to plug at the beginning here in case people don't listen all the way to the end which i totally understand with a podcast <laughs> i have stickers i have podcast stickers that uh, i am willing to give out for free if you subscribe to our show and you send me an email or a message on linkedin or really any way you can find my contact information you send me a message and just say hey i subscribed to your show here's my mailing address i will hand write you a letter i will put it in the mailbox with a stamp (laughs) and i will send it to you and you'll get a cool free sticker they're really nice stickers too they're like the good vinyl they'll hold up on your car i think they're great and I also will not sell your information to the internet. <laughs> I promise. You, you won't get weird subscriptions to, I don't know, mailing chains or whatever, whatever happens. But today, well, this episode, we're going to be talking about what insects do in the wintertime. And I feel like this is would usually be an appropriate episode for this time of the year, but I know last uh, the last few days in New York, it's been pretty warm, but it is still February and... Technically winter. Technically winter. So I'm going to be covering a few different strategies that winter, that insects have in the wintertime. I'm mostly going to be... It's going to be in two categories. So non-dormant strategies and dormant strategies... And I, there's a, there's a few subcategories within those. So if you're ready to go, we'll, we'll start with non-dormant strategies. I'm ready. Um, so these are going to be strategies where the insect doesn't go through like a period of rest or arrested develop development or anything like that. So the first strategy I have is, uh, having dark coloring, so an insect with dark coloring can absorb more sunlight so they can basically stay warmer than the ambient air temperature in the wintertime. You might see what's called snow fleas in the wintertime on snow. Um, they're they're going to look like tiny little like dots, black dots on the snow. Uh, they're not technically fleas. They're springtails. So they're in the, in the order Columbula. And they have, and they stand out against the snow because of their of their <clears throat> completely black bodies, and that's just so they can absorb more sunlight and kind of stay warmer than the ambient temperature. Do they do stuff? Do they putter around, or do they yeah, just they, kind of are warm? Yeah, no, they they putter around. They do stuff in the winter time. They're usually like feeding on the microscopic algae on snow and, and and things like that and other small microorganisms. Another non-dormant strategy is shivering. So this is when insects uh, vibrate their flight muscles to generate heat. So this like idea that like ectotherms or like quote unquote cold blooded organisms can't like generate body heat isn't it is like a misnomer. Whenever you have like cellular respiration, you're like generating heat. It's just like to a different extreme than endotherms like us, where we have we have to maintain a, a relative body temperature. Um, but that doesn't mean that ectotherms can't generate like they're they're cold sort of thing. Do when they when they shiver their wings, is it uh, or do we know is it intentional or or is it? I don't know what you call it. Like reflexive? Yeah, reflexive. I'm not sure if it's reflexive or intentional. Um, That would be a good thing to for me to look up. I hadn't really thought of that. 
Um, so I'm I'm unsure. And this strategy is more uh, like a strategy in summer and fall, like when it gets cold at night or in the morning. It's not really like a dead of the winter strategy that's going to work. Uh, it's more for insects when they're just trying to warm up in the morning or maybe stay warm during the night. They'll kind of just shiver through the night. Uh, another non-dormant strategy that probably everyone's heard of is migration. It's crazy how far some insects migrate. <laughs> it is. Uh, so everyone, like, of course... I mean butterflies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah especially the monarch. But there's also the uh, globe skimmer, which is a dragonfly over in India that goes from India all the way to southern Africa. Um, that That is the longest recorded uh, migration trip by, I, if not... Uh, any organism on Earth, um, at least any uh, insect on Earth. Migration has a very specific definition that makes it different than uh, just like an organism like traveling around looking for food and in like a very simple sense. But so it has to fulfill one or more of these criteria. So there has to be persistent movement away from original home range it has to be a relative straight line movement in comparison to a zigzag pattern. It has to be undistracted by stimuli in its home range. Uh, so it needs to be like focused on something. Like it, it won't get basically sidetracked by other things uh, oh, okay. in its home range. So it's just, it should be intentional. Yes. It needs to look intentional to us, I guess. Yeah. Um, also, there's distinctive pre and post movement behaviors um, that could look something like uh, like fattening up before you move or like when you get there, you go into diapause or something else like there's distinct before and after migration things. And then there has to be a reallocation of energy in the body. Um, so so for it to be migration, it has to fulfill one or more of these criteria. I kind of mentioned this before, but some pre-migration preparation includes redirecting metabolism to energy storage, uh, suppressing sexual activity. That's so, you Not know, migrating yeah, pregnant. yeah, or, or wasting your energy on developing your, your gonads or your gametes or anything like that. And also morphological changes such as the production of wings and wingless individuals or the production of larger wings or increased flight muscles in individuals that uh, might already have those. So for migration, scientists have found that photo period is usually the main environmental cue for migration. What's that? Yeah, so photo period is day length. So okay. as us in the Northern Hemisphere, our days are longer in the summer, shorter in the wintertime. The closer you get to the equator, the less extreme you have in the winter and the summer. So that that is the main environmental cue for migration. And um, I, I'm going to kind of wrap up migration there because we could spend a whole episode on migration. But uh, there's a lot of other things to cover in this episode. Just some other behavioral changes that go along with non-dormant, uh, with non-dormant strategies for surviving the winter. So some of these can be in conjunction with internal physiological changes, which we're going to cover later, mm -hmm. but sometimes not. And some of these behavioral changes are burrowing. So insects basically burrowing into the soil or logs, and this is to help per uh, protect them from colder ambient temperatures. And then this is especially useful in climates that don't get super cold so they can avoid the frost line. So they burrow, but they don't go dormant. They just burrow and sit. Yes. Yep. In this case they do, but um, as we'll talk later, burrowing is often used with also species that go dormant. So a kind of an overarching theme of this episode is uh, insects use a lot of strategies. <laughs> and so, a lot of times they use them in conjunction with other strategies. There's a lot of insects. There's a lot of diversity. Of yeah. Yeah. Approaches. Yeah. So other behavioral changes. This is kind of uh, along the lines of burrowing, but uh, hiding in the snow. And so uh, this is more important for uh, more extreme climates, extreme cold climates where they actually retain their snow all year, unlike us in New York, where snow melts every other week. 
But snow acts as an insulator and the temperature can be significantly warmer in the snow compared to the air temperature. Another strategy is seeking out uh, warm local structures and that could be a human building. Like all of our ladybugs. Yeah. So just uh, using the resources that are around you and going in them uh, is a great, uh, a great place for an insect to hang out. So now I'm going to move on to the dormant strategies. And I'm going to have to start this category with kind of doing some definitions. Okay. So there's two types of dormancy. There's uh, quiescence, and this is defined as the slowed or halted development as a direct response to unfavorable conditions. Development resumes as soon as favorable conditions return. Uh, this is usually onset by temperature and is shorter than diapause. So diapause is the other type of dormancy that we're going to talk about. And this is the arrested development combined with adapted physiological changes. The continuation of development often depends on specific physiological stimuli. So I just gave you a lot there. Yeah. A lot of very, a lot of jargon. For this episode, of the two terms, uh, diapause is more important. So quiescence is basically an insect encounters crappy conditions for whatever reason, and maybe they're unexpected. They basically shut down, conditions return to normal, and they start right back up. That, that, that is kind of like the very basic layman's term uh, definition of, of quiescence. Um, diapause, since this is kind of more important, I'm going to touch on it a little more right now. Would it, is, would it be fair to say that diapause is like more extreme and quiescence is like briefer? Yeah, that... I, think, I think that's in, in general. I'm sure there's instances where like an insect goes through diapause that can be super short depending on the environmental cues that it needs. But I, in general, I'd say that's a good kind of cat how to categorize those two. Uh, again, in, in biology, you're always going to have exceptions to the rules, and it's hard to put these big terms into just bins, neat right. bins. Um, but if we didn't ever do that, then people would hate scientists even more. <laughs> well, and sometimes... Like, if you teach us what diapause is, then it'll be easier to imagine what it isn't. So Yeah, yeah. So why don't you take us through it? This is genetically programmed into insects, and there's two subcategories of diapause, not to make this even more confusing. I wish I could draw everyone kind of a big uh, flowchart of how all this works, but I'm going to try and describe it to you with my words. Uh, so there's obligatory and facultative diapause. Obligatory diapause is at a specific time, regardless of the environmental conditions, and usually re and is usually required in insects. Um, and then facultative diapause is optional, um, so it doesn't always have to occur every year. So this occurs in insects with multiple generations per year uh, because insects who fulfill their life cycle in June don't need to go dormant. So think of it this way. You're an aphid. Aphids reproduce very quickly uh, every year. So say the, f uh, the first generation of aphids hatches in May. It has another generation. All those aphids reproduce in July, and then they have another offspring generation in September. Great. The first, uh, what was it, two generations don't encounter winter. So why would they have to go dormant? That doesn't make any sense. Mm. But the third generation does encounter winter. And even though that the first two generations before it didn't go through diapause, that genetic material is all those like genetic coding there. It, it, yes. Yeah. I, so I was just learning um, about how this is like such a crazy fucking thing that genetics does. Sorry, I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but how the genes will be triggered by environmental factors and they don't turn on sometimes until stuff happens. And this is ex and exactly what facultative diapause is. 
Then you get to the in the aphids that have their generation in September and uh oh, winter's coming. And then they're the ones that have to then go get get into diapause, get into that state uh, at, at which they can overwinter and then overwinter, even though the generations before it didn't have, have to. to. And again, they're doing this without they're doing this all on environmental cues. Um, this is usually photo period. So as the days get shorter, insects have a lot of photoreceptors all over their bodies. And the photoreceptors are very, very precise. Like I would say they're probably a lot better at sensing how long the day is than we are because they don't have watches. (laughs) Or screens shining blue light at them all the time. And so they um, sense that the days are getting shorter and there gets to be a point where the day length is short enough that their body automatically starts go- preparing for diapause. I have a stupid question. Yeah. What were those receptors called? Photoreceptors? Uh, so there's photoreceptors. There's there's different kinds. The A common one is ocelli. Um, okay. Wait, before you... Yeah. It, it, this is a dumb question. Is a photoreceptor different than an eye? Like, how is it different than an eye? They, so ocelli are, I I do know this. (laughs) Uh, Because, so a compound eye is basically made up of many lenses, Mm -hmm. each with a single, like each lens has a single, uh, like, cone and receptor at at the back of it, where ocelli are a single receptor, not, combined together within like a compound eye and um so it can't like start piecing together these different receptors to make an image so it's just light or dark yes yep exactly it it just like senses is it light is it dark is it light is it dark it's kind of i imagine how a light receptor works on like any sort of electronic it can't like make a picture mm-hmm. you know it's not like a camera where like the the compound eye would be like more like a camera um where it has a bunch of receptors in the camera to piece together this image where like a basic a light receptor just like is it getting photons is it not getting photons uh, this is a philosophical question but i wonder what i wonder what that's like in the insects, like brain, you know, and its nervous system. Like, how does that? How does its? How does its nervous system process that stimuli? And like, what does it look like? If if anything, you yeah. Know? Or is it just like a response? You know, it's like, is it just like flinching when something's hot? You go into yeah. You know, it's interesting. No, no, I, I, uh, so it's interesting. We're gonna get philosophical next next episode when we talk about insects and pain. But maybe this is something I can kind of look up while it's there because I think about like there's. There's certain insects that are deterred by light. So like cockroaches or any sort of ground dwelling insect don't like light. And when they, you know, receive those, that stimuli of the light, their instinct is to move away from it. So I don't know how they, like, it's interesting to think about how they would like, what that feels like to them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I hadn't, I think I, I remember learning like in elementary school about how, Spiders and insects have like many eyes, kind of, right? Uh-huh. And so they can see, I don't know, different, but I hadn't thought about that in a really long time. And I don't, now I'm curious how insects see, but we're getting pretty philosophical. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things that we'll never be able to completely, we'll never know because right. we're not insects. Yeah, it's it's it would it's like be like how chickens can see the forbidden colors. Uh, so yeah, and insect and insects can too. They yeah. can see um, ultraviolet light, and um, you know we can't us peasants. That's all right. <laughs> you know what though? You know what we do have capitalism. So <laughs> try that, chickens. Uh, so, anyways, just to so <laughs> so anyway, yeah, not, <laughs> to, to, re, to re, so to remind you guys again. So there's obligatory diapause which is usually required by insects and occurs at a specific time regardless of environmental conditions that can be thought of like i gave the multi-generation example of aphids in facultative diapause which is optional obligatory diapause is more common for insects that have one generation per year so like one the offspring offspring are born the baby is born in may it grows up and then it has to uh, then it 
either has to like overwinter as an adult or lay an egg uh, in the in the winter time, and that's what overwinters. But there is some point in that in that individual's life, either as an egg or as an adult, that it has to overwinter. So it's it's obli- obligatory. And we've talked about insects that do that. Um, yeah, on here. Yeah, and, and so there's a lot of insects that do have either or. Mm-hmm. Um, they, this these are both very commonly you like common strategies. I just needed to cover them both in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's diapod like we're gonna have all those that weird cicada convergence this summer, right? Like that that's diapod. Yes, isn't that is. It? Yes, cicadas to sleep for seven or fourteen years. Yeah, I believe so. Many. If I'm not mistaken, if I don't know a whole lot about the cicada life cycle. I, I know they're laid does. as eggs. And then I don't know if they, they, they're going to have to have a period where they're not in diapause developing if they emerge as adults. So like they're, they're probably active as larva and then they are in stars because cicadas are, wait a second. How so, does that make sense? So, well, so, so I like, I mean, before we met, I listened to a podcast about it because I am sure I think there was some kind of emergence, and so there were a bunch of podcasts about uh-huh. it. And I don't remember anything about it except that it's kind of a mystery. Like I think we should we should look it up for real because I'm I'm uh-huh. relaying a half remembered co- podcast, but like my feeling is that like it's a it's kind of a mystery. And me thinking about it, so knowing what I know about cicadas and true bugs they don't they don't go through complete metamorphosis they go through uh they they have incomplete metamorphosis so they have instars so they hatch from egg into an instar and now i'm thinking about that that makes absolutely no sense and i don't know how they do that so i wouldn't be surprised if it's a complete mystery to entomologists but anyways, <laughs> now that we've gotten on to the, the more you learn about the world, the less sense it yeah, makes. Yeah, I know, I know <laughs> exactly. It just like it makes way yeah. less sense now. So great. Different species of insects, just insects in general, can go through diapause in all different life cycles. But usually, like each specific species has a a, a life stage that it does it in. So say. Ah, man, I'm just gonna... Now I'm too focused on the (laughs) cicada. Um, But say this certain type of beetle always has to go through diapause as an egg uh, compared to, like, this certain species of wasp always goes through diapause as an adult. That will always stay consistent within the species. I'm probably gonna regret that because... uh, Right, there's probably some exceptions. Yeah, there's probably some exceptions, but generally... Egg and pupa diapause is common, and this is uh, most likely because these these are closed systems and there's not a lot of gas exchange happening. So if you think of an egg, and then you think of an insect egg, <laughs> and then you think of a pupa, um, so that's like the stage between the caterpillar and the butterfly. These are these are like these are probably the systems that go through like the least amount of gas exchange and like basically water exchange. And they're, they're probably the most stable, stable stage. So that they're one of the more common uh, stages that insects go through diapause in, even though they do go through, they do go through diapause as adults and larvae. Diapause can last weeks, months, years, and even multiple years. And I just want to reiterate that this is not in response to adverse conditions. It is pre-planned. So it usually coincides to adverse conditions, right, but like- it's not, it, it's, it's correlation, not causation. Um, so just because like it starts snowing and this beetle goes into diapause, it's not, it's, it's not, not necessarily, like, it's not like triggered because it's cold. It's, it's triggered because that's what it does that yeah, time of year. Yep. Like, That's because because the photo period. Yeah. Um, Although, I mean, if you want to get philosophical again, if you go back far enough, like evolution triggered it to <laughs> realize it needs to do that to get through the winter. Yeah. We're getting pretty philosophical this episode. <laughs> and and so we get we mentioned that like 
a lot of times cold weather is correlation, not causation, but that doesn't mean that cold weather can't put a insect into quiescence. And so that's the other state where the insect shuts down as conditions get bad and it starts right back up again as conditions get good. So it can, so cold weather can be something that puts it into quiescence if it's not like time for it to go into diapause yet. So many different environmental cues can induce and terminate diapause. Photo period is the biggest one, but temperature can be one food quality. So if food quality gets bad or good, it, that can cause it. Um, moisture levels, pH, and environmental chemicals. So there's a lot of, there's a whole host of things out there, but for the most part, it, it's photo period because that is the most consistent. Right. Yeah. That is like the most stable. The earth doesn't change, yeah. doesn't, the sun does not change its track. Is that one of those things that like artificial light might be screwing up for insects or? I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't look too much into the, the research about it, but I'm, sh I know light pollution is a big problem with insects in many different aspects. And I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if this is one of the as aspects mm -hmm. and just to kind of, uh, as a side note, uh, this this episode's topic is winter adaptations, so we're going to try and stay true to, like, you know, wintertime. But there's a lot of reasons why an insect might go into diapause, um, not just being in a cold climate. Yeah. I kind of mentioned this before, we kind of mentioned this before, but um, this is just another emphasis that... Just because an insect is genetically programmed to carry out a process such as diapause or migration, that doesn't mean it's the only tool in their toolbox. Mm -hmm. um, so they have a lot of tools to their disposal and they're super diverse and uh, adaptable. So you are an insect. I am an insect. And you get your cue to begin diapause. Now we're going to be getting into how they actually deal with the cold. Okay. So their bodies start physiological processes that prepare them, and they also have behavioral changes that might aid their diapause. There's two big categories here. There's freeze tolerance and freeze avoidance. And just to recall, if you remember from basic bio, the major, the major danger to animal cells during freezing is ice crystals forming in the cell and that ruptures the cell and that's how you get black <laughs> that's how you get black hands incidentally that's also why you shouldn't keep coffee in the freezer <laughs> it makes it taste worse we're looking at my friend jake who kept his coffee in the freezer. Everybody thinks that they're supposed to keep their coffee in the freezer, and they're not. So we're going to start with freeze avoidance. This is a survival strategy to change the physiological characteristics in the body to literally avoid freezing. It's right there in the name. <laughs> Easy to remember. Freeze avoidance, you're, you're avoiding freezing. So this is also called supercooling. To start, insects will evacuate their digestive system to remove any ice nucleating agents. I guess I should start with, if if you don't kind of remember from chemistry and more uh, like the basic uh, high school sciences, like ice in order to form, like water, pure water will not freeze because it doesn't have a nucleating point in the liquid for the crystalline structure to start. You need something in there for the crystals to start forming off of. Wait, what? Say that again. I'm sorry. So <laughs> in order for ice will not form, like pure water will not form ice. You can freeze it below zero degrees centigrade ah uh, but if there's like if it's like distilled or something and there's no there's no uh, like and all it takes is like a, a dust particle that's what those like videos of people like taking aquafina out of the fridge and smacking the freezer, it yep. and like opening it and it pours yep. out like a slushy that's yep. what that is okay yeah sorry i wasn't listening at first but i got you now yeah yeah and so so insects, knowingly or unknowingly of this, get rid of as much as they can from their digestive system, so any frass. 
just because that acts as a, a nucleating agent for ice. They will also seek dry areas to avoid external contact with ice because that can also kind of cause a chain reaction through their body. Mm -hmm. If they're like up against ice, then the ice, it's, it's kind of weird, but kind of think of it as like lightning, like it touches something and it conducts through. That's probably not the most like chemically accurate analogy, but that's as best I got. Yeah. Yeah. They also formed, uh, they also form a thickened cuticle, um, so that's their exos on their exoskeleton, the the waxy sub like the waxy exoskeleton. Um, they form a thickened one, and that again helps them from external ice and external nucleation. Now the cool stuff, the even cooler stuff. As they start to get these environmental cues, uh, usually in the fall, if we're talking about around here, the insects start producing polyols and sugars. So common ones are ethyl glycol, glycerol, and these are all kind of like antifreezes. Mm-hmm. And these chemicals change the body chemistry of the insect to lower the freezing point of that insect. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So they basically pump their bodies th- full of antifreeze so that they don't freeze. Hmm. They also, as they're dormant, they still produce these thermal hysteris factors or THFs. These are important molecules that help stabilize the body further. Um, And that's because these proteins, these factors, literally bind to ice crystals and encapsulate them so they don't spread through the body. Cool. Yeah. So it just like entraps them pokeball style. And so, so the ice crystals don't just keep spreading through the body. Is that inside the cell or outside cells? I think it's around the cells. Freeze avoidance is effective during conditions where it might get cold quickly or fluctuate, but but you start to get high mortality when you get... Um, the greatest mi- um, when the greatest minimum temperature reaches the freezing point of the antifreeze compounds. So that kind of makes sense. Right. There's, there's Once only... they start to freeze, it's over. Yeah, and those ana- the antifreeze can drop their super cooling temperature, um, but there is like there's a limit. There's a mm-hmm. floor to how cold they can get before ice still forms. Now we're going to go on to freeze tolerance. And this is like the opposite. So insects do freeze, but they do it in a special way. And freeze tolerance uh, usually includes the most cold tolerant species that scientists know. Environmental cues cause the insect to start producing ice nucleating agents. So they're doing the opposite. They're that whereas. Um, so they're increasing the freezing instead of decreasing. Kind of. Um, so uh, in freeze avoidance, they were trying to get rid of all these nucleating agents. Uh, in freeze tolerance, they're they're producing these ice nucleating a- agents, but they're putting them in areas where it's freezer f- it's where it's safer for the insect to freeze, and so they're basically trying to. Like in parts of their body where it's safer to freeze? Yeah. Okay. So they're trying to like strategize where the ice forms in their body so it's not lethal to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of these areas are in the hemolymph, which is insect blood, and in the gut. As the insect body starts to freeze, kind of in these areas between cells, so say in this case the, the hemolymph and the gut, um, it only helps to pull more water out of like the cells that they're trying to protect. So it, it, it kind of creates this positive feedback system. So they're promoting freezing in these areas that they uh, is going to be non-lethal to them. It's still going to be damaging, but mm-hmm. it's not, they're not going to die. And as these areas freeze, it, it starts to dehydrate the essential cells that they want to keep safe. And then so as you pull the water out of those, those don't have the chance of freezing and then rupturing. Um, so it kind of, it, there's like this positive feedback loop where as it, it just makes them hardier and hardier the, the more that they freeze. Uh, that being said, freeze 
Tolerant insects also have varying degrees of supercooling that we saw in previous avoidance insects. And, and they usually have this supercooling to smaller degrees, but it's usually in uh, essential tissues like their, their brain or probably their like reproductive system. So as these insects are going through supercooling and periods before and after full freeze, uh, it helps protect the insect in warmer periods in spring and thaw where they're, they're still experiencing cold, um, but it's not to the extreme where it starts activating their, like their other defense mechanisms. So it's kind of like an this super cooling in freeze tolerant insects is like a intermediate stage to like the extreme where they're like freezing all over and, and they have these, these capsules that like, that cover these ice nucleating agents and stuff like that. So again, these two, uh, strategies of freeze avoidance and freeze tolerance can kind of have like these overlapping conditions yeah. yeah, and mechanisms that like insects can't like will often use kind of parts of either or yeah how do they learn this do they just like dissect frozen insects and look at where stuff was frozen i imagine so and also as we're now in like the genetic age i i think you can do a lot with kind of coding Mm. for the mechanisms that produce these different proteins and things like that so it's hard to say yeah you know this isn't entirely my field of research but i imagine it was a lot of dissection in the older days and then now it's a lot of uh genetic like gene markers and like seeing and cutting things out and seeing what proteins aren't produced and things like that so and it's important to note though that freeze tolerance is not perfect Uh, a lot of an insect's survivability depends on having an acclimation period before having full ice nucleation so it can't just like it can't just you can't throw it into sub 30 temperatures like that it needs to have kind of this build-up period to where conditions start getting colder and colder and colder it it can't just go into a quick deep freeze and it's also important to know if an insect experiences a lot of freezing and thawing during diapause it can kind of break down these different mechanisms that it has to defend itself and it can cut back on its survivability if it's going through a lot of freeze and thaw periods because these proteins and these molecules are only, you know, so tough that mm-hmm. like they can only do their job so much before they start breaking down. So if I when I think of ticks... I feel like the thing that I hear is that because it does, we have them more here now or like at all because it doesn't get cold enough to kill them in the winter. And it's interesting that, that, that like not get cold enough is good for ticks, but like bad for other insects that need like a long cold winter to overwinter. I would kind of push back on. Not a good assessment. Yeah, I would. Uh, in the sense of like not cold enough to kill ticks, ticks are from this area and they evolved in conditions that were colder. So it doesn't make sense that a cold snap would like completely wipe their numbers. I I, I don't actually think ticks are if. If ticks are more common, I don't think it's because of it doesn't get it warming up. Yeah, because yeah. it's warming up. I be, I bet there would be other conditions to that. And uh, and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if ticks aren't more common. At least, so some species are definitely are, are gaining numbers, like the Lone Star tick and the Asian Longhorn tick and and things like that. But mm-hmm. like ticks that were like native to here. They, they weren't as studied before we knew about Lyme. Right. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we're just like getting all this, all this more data because of our interest in Lyme. Gotcha. Um, but uh, it also could be uh, maybe there's more rodents and deer now than there were in the past. And so 
that those are carriers of ticks and so that their po- population genetics is is a very complicated and and so perhaps the we have more ticks because it doesn't get cold is like not the simple explanation that it sounds like. Yes, I don't. That was a very polite way to tell me that I was wrong, which was very nice of you. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, when you get to population genetics, there, there's often many factors that contribute to the rise and fall of, of numbers. So that kind of covers the, the, we talked about like the traditional, quote unquote, traditional overwintering, like diapause methods of freeze tolerance and freeze avoidance. Um, I do quickly want to touch on there. There's this like new world, this new age thought of how insects, how insects overwinter, mm-hmm. and it, I think it incorporates this idea that. Insects aren't always hard cold tolerance or cold avoidance. I think this new kind of like terminology and new way of thinking grasps the idea that insects are like incorporate a lot of different strategies into into overwintering. Um, it's you know it's not hard and fast rules. And um, I also want to mention this because the guy who the the professor who's doing a lot of the research for that that I recently is uh, a professor at University of Kentucky. Nice plug. Nice plug. Go go Wildcats. But this started in 1978 with a landmark paper that was published that described a different form of adapting to cold temperatures in insects that. Uh, weren't in diapause so this is kind of a this is considered a non quote-unquote non-diapause strategy but and we won't do this but if you get into more of the literature I think it kind of has like greater implications of just being non-diapause and diapause like and I think it, it again it's kind of this like larger like encompassing thought but the term was called rapid cold hardening or our C-H. But I like calling it the, by its full name, Rapid Cold Hardening, because that sounds like a great band name. Hmm. And what makes this distinct from the other stress responses, freeze tolerance and freeze avoidance, is it typically does not involve the synthesis of new gene products. So for all the... For, for freeze avoidance and freeze tolerance these insects are creating these antifreeze kind of chemicals and these ice nucleating a- agents in like in a direct response to like them going into diapause so mm-hmm. like they're creating these new these new chemicals in their bodies for this purpose and rapid cold hardening is different because it doesn't involve the synthesis of new products. It, it uses existing cellular mechanisms that's just already there present in the, in the insect. So researchers found that if a non-diapausing insect, in this case, it was a flesh fly, were exposed to a quick cold pulse, so two hours at zero degrees centigrade, and then put into a deep freeze at negative 10 degrees centigrade, they had a much greater chance of survival compared to if they were just put into a deep freeze right away. And they and they kind of did more research and saw that. Um, so if you're a flesh fly and you're just put into deep freeze, you have a 5% chance of survival. But if you're chilled first at that zero degrees centigrade and then put into the deep freeze, you have over a 90% chance of survival. And like that chilling period, again, is only two hours. It's, it's fairly quick. And that, the, this whole, that's how kind of this whole process gets its name, rapid cold hardening. Like you're, you're doing this rapidly. And studies have shown that the effects of rapid cold hardening can accumulate over long periods and insects progressively become more cold tolerant. So say they experience a week of warm and cold cycles like pretty consistently, they progressively get better and better at dealing with the cold and it's kind of this idea of that like you're you're building up a a tolerance. So Mm -hmm. like when you think of like 
when I'm in like the dead of winter and it gets cold, it's not very cold to me, but like if it like gets cold on a, on a May morning, it's right, cold. It feels really cold. You, you know, yeah. you, you get acclimated basically mm-hmm. to the cold and it's kind of thought that insects do the same thing with this rapid cold hardening process. It's also been shown that insects that like are going through this rapid cold hardening process have a faster recovery from chill coma. Um, chill coma is, again, a cool band name, mm. um, but it's this reversible state of paralysis at like low temperature. So it's basically the insect like doesn't physically freeze, but like you, it no longer moves. So if you think of it just like a cold morning, it's just sitting there. Um, that's like chill coma. So that like has big implications for insects that might not experience a lot of really cold conditions that are, that has uh, big implications for insects that might experience a lot of cold conditions that aren't fatal, but mess with the abilities of the insects. So basically, again, this idea of they can get acclimated to like colder conditions, not necessarily freezing conditions, but they, they just get better. They can operate better at these more colder conditions, like 40 degrees. Uh, and that's Fahrenheit. Uh, this isn't perfect though. There's, there's costs to it. And insects have been shown to be less heat tolerant after the induction of rapid cold hardening. There's usually a reduced fecundity in insects after rapid cold cold hardening. And what's what's that? Your your ability to reproduce. So basically, like, think your fertility. Okay. And uh, there's also decreased male mating effectiveness after uh, rapid cold hardening. Is mating effectiveness separate from fertility? Like... They're less sexy. I it like also less attractive, or they just aren't. I imagine it in insects they might not be able to sense females as well, so uh, their okay. like olfactory receptors aren't as good at, at picking up the ladies. Okay. Again, uh, Doctor Nicholas Teets has been doing a lot of work with rapid cold hardening at University uh, University of Kentucky, and it's just kind of another way to look at uh, insects. Adapting to the cold. Just to, to wrap this podcast up now with the big picture, we I think we've shown that insects have a lot of effective strategies to survive harsh winter conditions. If you can keep track of all this all the information I just gave you, then you should probably be an entomologist because <laughs> I just gave you a lot of information. And insects use these strategies in many different ways and many different combinations. And like these strategies have evolved for hundreds of thousands of years. And so they're like highly conserved processes in the, in the insect genome, because if an insect can't survive winter, they're going to die and they can't pass on their genes. Like these are very important processes that the insect does. So if they're, if they don't work, the insect's not reproducing and it's not passing on its genes. This would be the point in the podcast where I'd kind of plug a, a climate change section. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to. It's hard to do a, a an ecology podcast without a little of that, isn't it? Yeah, especially a winter-based one. Yeah. We, I, we got to ride our motorcycles on Christmas Day, though. Yeah, so. that was pretty sweet. but <laughs> so, But probably, like, bad news. Yeah. I'm not even going to like deal with climate change deniers at this point. I could I could drop you 200 scientific journal articles and I know you wouldn't read any of them. So, I you have no place in my podcast. <laughs> I don't want to go into the doom and gloom of it, but I think it will be interesting to see how insects adapt to our now more our changing winter conditions. I don't think it's going to end well for some of them, but I, it doesn't like, I'm not super worried about insects as a group of organisms on earth because they're going to do better than us. They're going to do better than most organisms on earth because they're not every single one of them, but there's so many. Yeah. Yeah. Statistically they're, they're going (laughs) to do better than us and uh, they're far more adaptive 
Maybe climate will change back to when there was like megafauna oh, and insects will man. be gigantic again. I'm, that would be maybe the best day of the world for an insect. Maybe climate change will be really good news for the insects. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, we're going to lose some of them, but I, I'd be interested to see what more we learn from insect adaptation as we go forward into unknown unknown winter conditions. Yeah, thank your local insects. They're doing great. They're doing their best job out there. It's it's not easy surviving negative uh, 30 wind chill when you're the size of a grain of rice. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're cold, they're cold. Bring them in. Uh, anything else we want to add? Can I do a plug? Yeah. If you live in Lexington, in Lexington, Kentucky and want to get a tattoo from me, you can do that. We'll be there uh, mid-March, so bugs or otherwise. <laughs> and, and again, I have stickers. I just ask you, pre- please subscribe to the show, even if you don't like it. I don't know why you'd be wanting a sticker, <laughs> <laughs> but I will send you one. Uh, and I won't like double check to see if you actually subscribed. I'm not. I'm not insane. Uh, it's on an honor system. <laughs> I've been giving out stickers like candy to people who come to get tattooed by me. So, yeah. Uh, and then just write me an email. My email I'm not making them subscribe. <laughs> I'm just giving them a sticker. <laughs> That's all right. They get a free Pe- pass. People like stickers, you know? <laughs> and, um, yeah, write me an email. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn name is Ben Knowlton, K-N-O-W-L-T-O-N. Yeah, just uh, connect with me if you want. I will hand hand write you an envelope with a stamp. Mm-hmm. It'll go in the snail mail and you'll get it, you know, six to ten business days. Uh, that concludes our episode for today. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. And you'll also get a free sticker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't pay you to advertise, except for I guess I did pay you for did stickers. stickers. Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I guess that's a lie now. That's a (laughs) write-off. Yeah, yeah, because I claim this on my taxes. (laughs) I'll claim it on mine if you don't. (laughs) Yes, my $20 stickers. Uh, Anyways, if you have any uh, questions or suggestions for future episodes, feel free. (laughs) Sorry, getting silly. It's getting late here. Uh, uh, we're missing the Super Bowl for this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who, who don't don't tweet at me? Who yeah. won? Feel free to contact me. I am at bdkn two two three at uky.edu. Thank you for listening, and remember to stay spineless. Oh man, we should make stickers that say "Stay spineless." Oh okay. That, be- that okay. Yes, <laughs> new sticker idea. <laughs> they don't say that now. So if you want a sticker that says that, you're gonna have to wait. <laughs> All right, is that last thing? <laughs> Thank you for listening, and remember to stay spineless.